It is our hope, prayer, and endeavor this morning to take a uh, healthy chunk of Scripture here and see, uh, hopefully we can cover much of it in a, in a very useful and practical way. I'm going to begin reading out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, and I'm going to read, read all the way to chapter 3, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 down to chapter 3, verse 10. Listen as I read God's word, then we will pray and unfold this together. Uh, Speaking first of all of those those, uh, uh, wicked Jews who came before, who killed Jesus, it says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So also to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, not in, uh, in person, not in heart, we endeavor all the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is hope and our joy or crown of boasting for our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we are to suffer afflictions just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Verse five of chapter three. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now, that Timothy has come to us from you and brought to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted by you through your faith. And for now we we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to the Lord for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. All right, let's pray, and then we'll begin to unpack this. Lord, as we um, open up your word, we always do so looking to you with great need and dependence. God, we recognize that when we open your word, it is not merely a book, it is not merely uh, good advice, it is not merely men's literature, but it is the living and powerful word of God. And that every portion of it, every section of it, every truth in it is for our good, for our edification, for the renewing of our minds, for the transforming of our very being. And so, Lord, as we consider a few things again this morning out of this text, as we reflect on certain ideas and things that it reveals to us, Lord, we pray that you would um, 
just work these things uh, deep into who we are and that you would use your word uh, for your glory in the hearts and minds of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, the section of scripture that I read, I understand that it bled over. I started reading chapter 2, and I went on to chapter 3. I want to remind us, all of those divisions are artificial. They were made by men, like you and me, in order to help us find the right verse. Which verse is he talking about? Chapter 3, verse 2. Then we can all go there. But when they, the books were originally written, they're just they're letters, and generally, I think when you write a letter, you don't write chapter one, <laughs> chapter two. If you write a letter to me that says, and I see it has six chapters, I don't know if I'm reading it. No. <laughs> the, the, the sense those, so those things are in there to help us, but many times, the thoughts and the themes, they bleed right through the chapter barriers. Many times, if the power had been in my hands, which it almost never is, I would have put verses and verse breaks in different places. But I'm only who I am and we are who we are. And I want to, so we're taking a bigger chunk and we're going to unfold what I would see as, as three themes. Really, there's four themes in this, but the fourth one is going to get extraordinary attention next week. Okay, the main themes we're going to look at today is the first thing we're going to see is the certainty of angry punishment, which doesn't sound delightful, but nonetheless, it is in this passage and something we should be aware of, the certainty of angry punishment. The second thing we're going to see is the, the sadness, from our point of view, of assenting pretenders, those who say, I believe, but don't truly have that life-changing faith that God brings. And then thirdly, we're going to see the sincerity of affection's passions as we see the interaction between Paul and, and the people at Thessalonica. And then the, third thing that, the fourth thing that we're not going to look at this week, but we're going to see next time, is the struggle against the adversary's power. Because we have that interesting section in here in verse 18. It says, but I, because I wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. You know, And that's interesting because some of us would have thought, well, why didn't he say, but it wasn't God's will. But instead of saying it wasn't God's will, he said, Satan hindered us. Us. And so we're going to consider that next week as we unfold these other thoughts today. The first thing I want to draw our attention to in the opening part that I read there in chapter 15, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, he was reminding that the message needs to be shared that brings salvation. And the, there were these people who were coming in and they were hindering that message from being delivered. And without that message being delivered, there is, no, there is no deliverance from sin. There is no deliverance from death to life. It is in the delivery of the message that a man is delivered, that a woman is delivered to life, to hope, to truth, to faith by the grace of God. And they were hindering it. And then it begins to, to say these things regarding those who are doing this hindering. And they had gone on and they had killed Jesus. Historically, they had persecuted and, and mistreated prophets. And it says this, the second half of verse 15, they dro and drove us out. 
they displeased God, which really is pleased not God. Because there's, he's either pleased or displeased. There's no, eh, I'm neither here nor there with it. You know, maybe our responses sometimes are like that. Well, how did you like that meal? I mean, I, I can live with it. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be like craving this ever. But I'm also not going to just leave it sitting on the plate, you know. You know, that, that's how we are. But there is no middle ground like that with God. And it's very important for us to know that. That things are either pleasing in His sight, and if it's not pleasing in His sight, then what is it? Displeasing. It's either righteous or unrighteous. There's no mid-righteousness. There's nothing like that, and it's important for us to know that because a lot of people, they, they, they like the notion, look, I may not be living in a way that's pleasing to God, but I'm not really displeasing Him. Wrong. If you're not, by grace, living in a way that's pleasing in His sight, then what are you actually doing? Displeasing Him. It's important for us to know that, but... That's just a passing thought is that here they are displeasing God, opposing mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come on them at last. I mean, that is, a, that is strong language, isn't it? Wrath has come on them at last. Now, wrath generally, this part of the challenge is When's the last time in ordinary conversation have you used the word wrath? Generally, if we have used it in ordinary conversation, it was a spiritual conversation about God. Right? And because we generally only talk about the wrath of God, we don't talk about the wrath of daddy and, and, and mommy and the wrath of, of employer. Or no, We could... It's just that word is somewhat fallen off, and in its place, we use a different word. Anger. And the actions that flow out of that anger. That's the idea of wrath. And there's a sense in which I think that, that we, we've so minimized wrath that we've, we've, we've relegated it only to the realm of punishment. And ignored the anger associated with it god in the scripture says he's angry with the sinner all day long it is not a small thing it's not simply the idea that someday somewhere in the end judgment is coming there is but note this it's not a gentle judgment it's it's not a weeping judgment it's not a tearful judgment it is going to be a powerful and angry judgment. And I want us to, be, to see this here. They're filling up that measure. But listen to what the scripture uh, uh, tells us in a few other places. It reminds us of this in Romans 13 regarding our own relationships with one another. Romans 13 verse 4 and 5 uh, regarding the, the leadership uh, who is the um, governing authorities. He's a servant. He's God's servant for your sakes. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for
for he does not bear the sword in vain, but he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Okay? So frighteningly, the final wrath that's coming. Frightening. And we're going to hear a moment about that. But note that the wrath of God that's coming is not the only expression of the wrath of God. There are ongoing expressions of God's displeasure and anger that are meted out. Murder is not acceptable, not pleasing in the sight of God. Agreed? Okay. And many who conduct themselves in that way and perpetrate murder, what happens to them? Some degree of punishment, hopefully, if everything's done right, they experience now. They're laid hold of, they're incarcerated, and, and they're, they're kept apart from the ordinary activities and joys of life. Some degree of wrath comes on now, but there is a greater wrath to come. I don't want us to, to, to miss that sense of it. Um, look what the scripture says, for example, um, in Romans chapter 2. Verse 5 to 8 says this, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day when the wrath of God, when the wrath, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. Yikes. So listen, there's either measures of wrath being poured out on you now for your wrongdoing, maybe by governing authorities and such, but the person who thinks, I'm getting away with it. Nobody knows it was me. I'm going to slide on by. Is it really happening? Well, what does the scripture say? If the, if the wrath isn't being experienced in some measure now, then all that's happening is it is being stored up. That's not a good thought. For the wicked, the hard-hearted, and the impenitent that don't understand that as they continue to live in sin and selfishness and disobedience and displeasure to God, they are storing up for themselves wrath. The measure of wrath that will be poured out on them will be commensurate with the measure of sin and disobedience and displeasure that they have done. Still in Romans chapter 2, now down to verse 6. He will render, this is when Christ comes bringing that on that judgment day, to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, which is the lifestyle that grace brings in the child of God, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Those are both strong words. And it's important for us to get that because uh, modern views of what happens when wrath is, of God is poured out are terribly deficient. 
We've considered this in the past, how people like to, to paint a picture of heaven as a bunch of people in white robes, sitting on clouds, playing harps, and looking mildly bored. <laughs> that is not the new heaven and the new earth where God dwells and where righteousness dwells. That is not it. And then conversely, how do they paint the picture of hell? There, the music is turned up, you know. Popular songs are playing. People are, you know, they're, they're dancing and they're singing and they're partying. And, 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 and people are like, oh, yeah. Well, what looks more interesting? What looks more attractive? No, none of that is there. The way that the scriptures describe it, it, it is not partying and dancing, not dancing and drinking. It's this weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right? And that, and that sense of gnashing of teeth is like a figure of speech that, that of somebody in such agony. It, it's kind of the idea uh, they used to do medically like this. All right, I'm getting ready to hurt you really bad. Bite down on this. <laughs> Stick something in your mouth. And if there's nothing to bite down on, then what do you end up doing? Just gnashing and grinding your teeth together because you're just trying to bear what is pretty much unbearable that is very different picture and not something that we should overlook and take lightly um, the scripture reminds us also further in Colossians chapter 3 I'm just going to read a few of these verses because it's important for us to understand this the scriptures have deemed it important to say this again and again and again because it is important for us to note the reality of these things. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, it says this. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Now, of course, that statement is only to believers, isn't it? To those in, Coloss in Colossae, those who are the church, it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. That's just such a beautiful little sentence there. Because it's not, it's not just that, that Christ is my hope. He is my hope. Not only that he's my savior, he is my savior. He's my Lord. He, he's my God. He's my, he's my life. Apart from him, I don't even have life. And, and all that I am and all that I'm about is him. When Christ, who is my life, appears. Can everyone say that? It's a little bit scary because there's lots and lots of people who go to church. And you might, you might look at them in their eyes. Or you might look in, take a mirror and look in your own eyes and say, Is Christ your life? Is everything else expendable and secondary and insignificant in comparison to Christ. Where for his sake you would willingly forego all else. When Christ who is your life appears. Now that's something I tell you this. That's not something men can manufacture. <laughs> there, there are degrees of devotion. 
that we can develop in pretense in our commitment to a group or a community or a society or a club or whatever it may be. But this is not degrees of commitment. This is, yeah, really? I don't exist anymore. My desires, I don't care. Wait, how can you not care about the very things you most care about? Well, because there's something I care far more about. And what is that? What Christ wants. What pleases him. All right, we need to stop getting distracted in the introduction of the sections I'm reading. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And as a result of that reality that Christ is your life, what do you do? You put to death. Now, if you're putting to death something, how often are you participating in it? How often are you involved and engaging with it? None. It's gone. It's dead. It's dormant. There's no more viable interaction. Bury the thing. What is it? That which is earthly in you. And then list some of the basic earthly things in men. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then it goes on to say this in verse 6. On account of which the wrath of God is coming. Ephesians 5 says it this way. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5 to 7. For you may be sure of this. And this is an important thing. You may be sure of this. There's a lot of things that maybe even preachers say that you might say, hmm, I don't know about that. You know, There should be a lot that's said on the news that you should say, I really am not sure about that. But listen, this you may be sure of. <laughs> what is this? That everyone who is sexually immoral and impure or covetousness, who's still living life for the desires of this flesh, what, is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So how much inheritance is he getting? None. So is he going there? No. Why? Because those who have received the work of the Spirit and the Word, it has made them a new creature, a new creation, a new being with a new heart and a new spirit and a new way of living. Is that new way of living perfect? No, not yet. But it, it's never going to be characterized by these things. And anyone whose life is characterized by these things needs to know what? You know what's waiting for me? Not inheritance, but wrath. Angry punishment and fury that results in endless agony. And I, and I will say this, I can use the biggest words possible. The same thing I would say if I was to try to describe heaven and I was, and I was to say, speak of, of beauty and excellence and nobility, and I was trying to, to pile up wonderfully descriptive words, my words wouldn't adequately convey just how immensely glorious it will be. If I pile up words 
as to how miserable, agonizing, painful it will be in the lake of fire. It's worse than that. The best our brains can get to, the inheritance is far greater. The worst our brains can get to, the punishment is far worse. Goes on to say, verse 6 of Ephesians 5, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. Such powerful words. Of course, what's beautiful is also Romans 5, 9 says this, Since therefore you have been now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come. Okay? So the wrath is a serious thing. Not something we should take little or lightly, but it's something that we recognize because of our union with Christ, because of his death, because of the redemption, the reconciliation, the forgiveness, the life that we have in him, it's not wrath that would be awaiting for those who are of faith. In a sense, those who, instead of being sons of disobedience, are by grace sons of obedience. We have now become obedient from the heart to that very thing that before we struggled and couldn't. Such an important and powerful warning, but such a blessed deliverance delivered from the wrath of God to come. Now, I just want to remind us of... Well, just a couple things in, as I close this out. The idea of the, uh, the sex, this part on God's wrath, not close out the sermon, don't you think about that. All right. Point one of three. All right. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, reminds us that when all things are coming to their ultimate end, it's, it tells us, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Back in chapter 19, verse 20, it says that the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Now, it's important for us to understand that in this passage, there is a description of this place, of this condition. What is that description given to us into which the beast, the false prophet, and the devil are thrown? And see, what's interesting about that is so far everyone's thinking, yeah, those three belong there. And you're right, but not only those three are going there. It says, the devil deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, which, which adds a stench to the whole burning feature, by the way. And then it says what? Where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night. How long? Forever and ever. Which is strange language, right? Because once you say forever, how, when does that end? Yeah, you know, forever means it doesn't end. So when you say forever and ever, Whoa, that's really emphasizing the fact that, wow, it really, really never ends. 
okay? Sometimes we read these things and we're just so familiar with the language that, that the, the strength of the wording doesn't quite grip us and we need to let it grip us because this is not something little and not something light. And when someone goes there, there's no second deliverance. There's no other chance. Anyone who goes there, they are there day and night forever and ever. And the only hope of deliverance from that is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way that someone comes to know and receive the blessed benefits of the blood and death of Christ is how? By the hearing of the gospel and the response from a heart of faith that calls upon the Lord. So this is not a small thing. So to those who, who have not and do not yet know the Lord, you need to run to Christ. You need to read that gospel and cry out to God and say, save me from my sin. Revelation chapter 20, still down to verse 14 and 15, death and Hades or thrown into the lake of fire. So when originally people first died, they, they went to Hades. Now death and Hades, that's thrown into the lake of fire. So now what's going to happen to everybody who was there? Well, now they all stand for judgment before the books. And it says this, that's the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15 says this, and if anyone, hear the judgment and the books are open. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life. That is that wonderful book of the life, the book of the lamb that was slain. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, what happens to him? He's thrown into the lake of fire. This is very, very serious. You know, we, we don't want to overdo it, but, but we've come to such a congenial sweet spirited politically correct age where when someone will speak of negatively maybe of someone they will say you know well he he's a hellfire and brimstone preacher you ever heard that figure of speech before you know and they meant it negatively and i and i must say that's not the primary topic of the scriptures and so that's not some, that's not a horse we need to ride every day okay but it's also something that is so true and so important and we've become so tippy-toed that we need to be reminded this is real. This is sure. This is bad. And we don't want it for ourselves for sure. We don't want it for our friends. We don't want it for our family. We don't want it for our, for our community. I would, I would hope to a certain extent, and I think that when we begin to understand the, the sense of the nature of hell, the ultimate hell and the lake of fire in its extremities, that we would even begin to think this, look, my enemy, that person who causes me a lot of problems, yeah, I kind of want them to get their own. I kind of want them to, you know, get a little bad. You feel this way, you admit it. Uh, but still, if you understand this, you'll be like, but I don't want them to go there. You know, they, I, don't, I don't want them, that level of, of, of torment, that level of misery, that level of agony, no. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray for those who persecute me. You wonder how the scripture can call us to pray for those who persecute us, and how do we do that? Well, when you understand that, 
And there's also a sense in which you've got to understand that when you pray for those who persecute, even as Paul himself was a persecutor of the church, what did God do to him? He woke him up. He converted him. And I ask you, how much grief of conscience do you think he struggled with when brought under that conviction, particularly for those, those three days when he was blind? I have been persecuting the body of Christ. I have the things that I have done to these people. Yeah, Paul kind of got in his own heart and mind, a, a little bit of, of the misery to, a, and to an extent that he had inflicted. And that's not something that he forgot because ongoingly when he speaks of his ministry in the future, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. It's something that, that's there. You know, and it's, and it's recognizing that unworthiness and even maybe that, that regular stirring up of, oh, I cannot believe I did that. It's so terrible that he again can note the grace of God. But this will not be held against me. Oh. But it's important for us to see the strength of these things. The way that um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says this before we move on to the second point. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says it is this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. When he comes on that day to be glorified among his saints and marveled at by all who believed in him because of the testimony. Now, they will suffer eternal destruction. That doesn't mean they will be destroyed and never brought back. Destroyed forever. It is they will be in a state of ruin and misery. And that won't end. You know, and, and other pictures of, are given to us in the scriptures where, where the worm never dies and, and all kinds of things that I, I can't paint a graphic enough picture verbally or even artistically, though artists have tried and presented some pretty horrific looking works. It is worse than that. Now, so it's important for us to remember that and in remembering that, there is secondly what I would call the sadness of assenting pretenders. And, and this, is, this is Paul's struggle. In the days of Christ, there would be some who, because seeing his signs or impressed by his teaching, would believe in him. And Jesus would look at them and it would say in John uh, chapter 2, for example, he wouldn't entrust themselves to them because he knew all men. Other places, it would say this whole group of people believed in them, and Jesus said, well, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Because there, there's places in the gospel where it says uh, uh, many of the uh, Pharisees and leaders believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees and for fear of men, they would not follow him, and they would not speak of it. And it goes on to, to, to give those strong warnings of those who are impressed, are pleased, but aren't truly saved. Those who would voice a general agreement with things, 
but are not truly transformed. That's why it says, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, as Paul is away from the church at Thessalonica. Remember, that, that was a difficult situation. He came into this place in his, um, in his uh, missionary journeys, as we call them. He reached Thessalonica three weeks. That's all he had there was three weeks. And within three weeks of sharing the gospel with them, he was run out of town. And so since he's left, he's wondering, I don't know the condition of those people. I don't know if they've really laid hold of the things that I've taught, or I don't know if they've abandoned. That's why it says here in chapter 3, verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I didn't know if, if what seemed to be your response was really the work of God that is powerful, transforming, and abiding. Or whether it was just the emotional, momentary response of a man. I didn't know. It, it, it reminds us of the section that we have in Matthew chapter 13. Right, in Matthew chapter 13, we have the, the gospel being presented, the word of God, and a seed that is on the path or on the roadway, that is on the rocky ground, that is on the thorny ground, and that is in the good soil, right? And so some of those, not the path, there the, the bird snatched it up, the enemy snatched it up, there was nothing that took place. But the rocky ground one, it grew up a little bit, but then it got burned up by the sun. It didn't endure. The, the thorny ground one, what happened with it? It grew up, but the, ch the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of the flesh choked it out and it bore no fruit and only the one was in good fruit. But those other two, at first glance, they had received the word and received the word with joy. So at first glance, I, I think a work of grace has happened here. I think a work of saving faith has been, happened here. But then time will tell, as John says later in 1 John, they went out from us because they were not of us. We actually thought they were. It looked like it, but they weren't. And here's his concern. He was there for three weeks, and then he's gone. And he knows the persecution and the problems that forced him out of there, and he's wondering along the way, how are they doing? I hope they've stayed faithful. I don't know. I hope and pray that they're not thorny ground, that they're not the rocky ground, but they're the fertile soil because that is what matters. Now listen to this. It, 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 he, he, by the time he writes this, he has actually sent Timothy and Timothy has come back with a good report. And so as a result of that, he knows I had not labored in vain. The, the seed that I planted didn't come to bear no fruit. Indeed, it is bearing fruit. The spirit and the power of the word working within you. So that uh, chapter 1 verse 6, you became imitators of us. Chapter 2 verse 13 and 14, you became imitators of the churches. Holding fast to their faith under affliction. Uh, the word of God in chapter 1, verse 5, it came to you with power and full conviction and assurance. In a visible, remarkable, and demonstrable way, chapter uh, 1, verse 9, you turned 
to the true and living God. You turned from those things to serve the true and living God. So that now, if you were to go back to say uh, verse 3, what was characterizing these people? A work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope. There is the fruit of righteousness. That is why you abide in Christ, you will bear what? Much fruit. When you are truly his disciple, when he is truly your life, when you are truly delivered from the wrath to come, it, it, it's really, it, uh, let me describe it in these simple terms. When someone is truly saved, truly granted saving faith, they turn from what they were to the true God. Not only do they turn, but they are being transformed. There is a turning, there is a transforming, where they're turning away from sin and being more and more like Christ, and there is a triumph, because they continue to have victory over the enemy, and they will not be distinguished and destroyed. The enemy can shoot, and we'll look at this next week, all the fiery, fiery darts that he might attempt to shoot at us, but he cannot take us out. You know, There is this, this remarkable sense in which, by the grace of God, he can fire and fire and fire, and we can be filled with those arrows. Why is that guy not falling? Not because of our strength, but because of the grace of God that is ours. And so this is, this is a, a frightening thing and a very important thing for us to note. Because remember, and, and I want to just briefly remind you of those important warnings. It had said this in Matthew chapter 7. Not every, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I draw you to Matthew chapter 7 again because here, here's the difference. If somebody runs out the doors of the church and, and runs into a bar or brothel, then you're like, yeah, that guy, I know. <laughs> he, he's on the path of wrath. That's clear. But what happens if he or she hangs around the church? stays within the Christian community, continues to hear and there use the right words and phrases, continues to hear and there participate in the activities of the group. Is it possible for someone to actually be self-convinced they are saved only to have the Savior look at them and say, no, get out of here. The frightening thing is yes. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, when saving grace, transforming grace comes, what does it now do? It transforms how we live and what we do. So if how we live and what we do is not changed, then we have not been changed. And if we have not been changed, then what are we? 
still sons of disobedience. And sons of disobedience, what's waiting for us? The wrath of God. Not a small thing. Many will say, and, and what, what, uh, not everyone who says, but verse 22 says this, on that day, many will say to me. So here, here's, the, here's the two things. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Which means they are convinced. And then it says on there, many will say. Lord, did we not? And begins to list some of the considered most noble exploits for the kingdom of God. Right? Just exemplary ones. You could fill in other ones. Did I not go on mission trips to feed the poor and, and, and build houses for the homeless? And did I not? Yeah, you, you did those. You did those things. But the question ultimately is, what has been done in you? Because what has been done in you will affect what you do, and more than that, it affects why you do what you do. Because listen, this is part of the challenging thing that the scriptures tell us this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So all of the good works we do aren't considered good if they're not the overflow of the faith that he has worked in our hearts. That's why it's called a work of faith and a labor of love. It flows out of those things. So these are so frightening. Did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And in verse 23, Jesus says to them, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now, this is at the final judgment. These are people who have lived and died or, or lived the fullness of their life and he, he's come met them and, and the, the picture given is at the final judgment. They are still fooling themselves. And they think they know their hearts better than Jesus does. We don't know our hearts better than he does we must be born again it says it says it this way in luke chapter 13 verse 23 someone said to him lord will will those who are few oh no lord will those who are saved be few that, that that's a concern you begin to hear these things many will say this and he departs well then how many are going to be saved well, Jesus is not surprised by these things. He says narrow is the way and few are those who will find it. So the answer to will only few be saved is yes, few with regard to the totality of mankind in human history, but still that few with regard to tallying them up is still a multitude no man can number that is there worshiping in heaven but still in every given generation it is it is a, a fewer and it says this will few be saved and he said to them strive to enter through the narrow door for i tell you for many i tell you will seek to enter and not be able oh no 
I want to enter the kingdom of God. I want to enter into this inheritance. I want to enter into all these hopes. I want to enter into these promises. Many will seek to enter and not be able. And once the master has shut the door, has risen and shut the door, and you begin outside to knock saying, Lord, open to us. Lord, open to us. And he says, I don't know you and sends them away. These are not small, insignificant things. So listen, here's the important thing. If you strive to enter and you recognize, I'm not able. I keep trying to fix myself. I keep trying to change the way that I live. I keep trying to to get a grip on my sin and overcome it. Well, here's the reality. If you keep trying and you keep failing, it's because this, you're not able. (laughs) But there is one who is able. And so you need to cry out to him who is able to come into your life, change your heart, fill you with his power and his grace, and make you new. And change who you are. Just don't want that anyone would be deceived because it is such a danger and such a fear the gospel and it's uh really uh, one verse in in transition to our final point it says this in in first corinthians chapter 15 verse 33 to 34 Again, here's that reminder, do not be deceived. There are those who are going to be there on that last day who are deceived. And here's this warning in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You become like the people you're with. That's the way that it happens. And so what, what, is an, what is a wise thing to do? Be with people who are pleasing to the Lord. Listen, bad company corrupts good morals. Listen to what it says. And so he says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. The gospel in its power and in the Holy Spirit, it it helps to remove us from those sinful associations. I mean, ultimately, as we move on to the next point, really the gospel and its power, it it, it works as it turns us to God from the world. It, It separates us from those sinful associations and companionships we have. One other thing that it does for us is it moves us out of selfish isolation. I mean, and, and, and who, depending on who we are and how we're wired, some of us are just more social creatures, and some of us are just less social creatures. Some of us, uh, uh, I know people who um, are not comfortable or content if they're alone. They, 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 got, they need to, they want to have people around them. So anytime they're going to maybe uh, uh, watch uh, a March Madness game, some they're calling people there's got to be groups because they can't do it and i know other people who are like yeah i'd rather just watch it alone not not distracted and interrupted you know you know and you know someone's gonna say something annoying and you know 
right? And so you've got, you've got people on, on all sides. The grace of God helps us to overcome all of those things, the sinful associations and the selfish isolation. And what it does is it unites us to one another. Because I want to just draw your attention to a few beautiful things that will breeze through in this passage. Now, listen to what it says in verse 17. Listen to Paul's, what, again, this is what I would call the sincerity of affections, passions. How much Paul loves these people. And his love for them is because they are people of faith. Because they share, uh, they're shared members of the household of God. There is something extraordinary in the zeal and affection that's stirred up. And when you listen to what he says, and I'm going to just breeze through the, what he says in these passages, and hopefully you'll get this. In verse 17, it says, since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time, in person, but not in heart. Which means even though after a short time with you, we're no longer there with you physically. We still care about you deeply. And we're still with you. We're still concerned about you. You matter to us. You know, we say that to those who God may tear away from us shortly. That even when he tears you away in person, he will not tear you away in heart. Because we will still care about you deeply. And in these ways, it says, we endeavor all the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. He wanted to go back. He was so concerned about them. Listen to what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Um, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy. We're so, our hearts are so concerned with how you're doing and what's going on, we couldn't bear it anymore. You're so, it's so significant to us, our love and concern for you. We needed information. We needed to know how you're doing. He builds it up even further in verse 5 of chapter 3. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to find out. Look what it says down in verse... Uh, Six, concerning them, as they get the good news of the report of their faith and love, it says, it reported that you, second half of verse six, always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. That's what God in his grace does. When it unites us, and I say this, when it unites us to Christ in deep and sincere affection, it also unites us to Christ's. In deep and sincere affection. Because we share something. We share a bond. uh, The way way that I I like to think of it. We share, share a bond deeper than the blood in our veins. We share a bond due to the blood that flowed in our Savior's veins. And flowed from our Savior's veins. That is a deeper bond, a bond of redemption, a bond of reconciliation, a bond of unity, a bond of hope. And it goes on to say uh, things things like this. For this reason, in verse 7, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you. So Paul's real experience of of joys and, and, and comforts are in hearing about how the saints are doing, how His brothers and sisters in Christ are getting on. Look also down in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. 
verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. We love you. We care about you. We're concerned for you. We long to see you and we're praying about it all the time. We want to see you. Now, I wanted to say this, not by way of judgment, but if you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ and your thoughts are this, I could care less to ever see them again. Or, eh, take it or leave it. There's a concern there because the, the power of the grace of God, it, you know, don't ever let it degenerate to a concept of mere morality. The life in Christ, when Christ is our life, it includes much more than just putting evil practices off. There is a love for the brethren that is tangible and genuine, palpable and powerful. And so here's the, the concern again. This, this allows us to test our hearts. And if, if we say, yeah, I don't really long for spending time with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I do it because it's the right thing to do. But I don't really long for it. I don't really. You need to get on your knees and say, God, is your spirit and your word at work within me? Because grace unites us in these powerful ways. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to have all of these things that, that cause us to say, do I know the life of Christ in me? Because he, here's, by their fruit you will know them. What, we, what we're always trying to do, and this is a danger, what we're always trying to do is say, oh, don't, don't look at the fruit, look at the root. You know, I mean, did you, did you once upon a time pray a prayer? Do you to some degree agree with the fact that Jesus came and died and rose again? You know, and you're looking at, well, wonderful. But by their fruit, you will know them. And if the root is real, and if you are connected to that root, you know what's going to happen? Fruits. I don't know why I'm saying it like that. Okay. <laughs> But, but you're getting the point, right? And so this is, this is a challenge. If our hearts are saying, eh, God, you need to change me. You, you, you need to work in me the love that I ought to have for my brothers and sisters because this is real. This is life. This is what you've apportioned to me. These are your people. These are my people. They matter to me. And I matter to them. And we should know that and feel that and believe that about each other. And if that's not being communicated, we're doing something wrong. The world should see that among us and be like, wow, how is it that they care so much for each other? Such a powerful, exemplary witness. And then uh, just closing, because we have to close. I, I want to I note this. The caring is, it's not, it's, it's not just in a, um, are you getting enough to eat, you know, uh, are, are you sufficiently warm or cool, are, you know, not that there's a, not a concern about those things, but in our love for one another, our priority is for the faith and the walk in faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ.
Now, this is important because these are, these are the less had and seemingly uncomfortable conversations. How often do we look at one another and ask about our faith? And I, and I, I want to note this. More often than not, we don't do it because we feel like, ah, I, will, I don't want to be Mr. Spiritual Man. Where everybody thinks, that, you know, he's just making a pretense of how righteous and pious he is by inquiring about my faith. Well, it's only weird because we don't do it. If everybody's doing it all the time, well, I'm not going to say then nobody's pious, but then, then it's not a pretense of piousness. Then it is a genuine affection. And I want us to see all along here, what is, it, what is his passion as he wants to hear about these people when he could bear it no longer? He wanted to know what had become, what was the condition of their faith? Because, for example, uh, look what it says. When we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy, our co-worker, chapter 3, verse 1, to Christ to establish you and to exhort you in your faith. The, our priority should be for a person's walk with the Lord, their unity with God, their faithfulness. And so Timothy went there to what? Establish and exhort and encourage them in the faith. Not only that, if you go on with me, verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. In verse 6, Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith. They are comforted in all of their affliction, the end of verse 7, through your faith. Paul wants to visit them again, verse 10, and they pray for them night and day that he might come face to faith face so that he can what supply to them what is lacking in their faith it's not just a a a, a genuine uh, external love for the practical concerns of the people now we see that in the early church everyone was sharing nobody was going hungry they were meeting the needs of one another there's just there's this wonderful community but it's not just the practical things it indeed is the spiritual things. Now, some of you might be frightened here for a moment. Uh, uh, what is lacking in your faith? You say, whoa, whoa, what is lacking in their faith? So, I mean, what percentage of faith did they have? 40%? Uh, well, no, the problem was how long was he there? Three weeks. And so the truths that they had learned, the, the truths of the gospel, they believe those things by the grace of God 100%. But there was still a lot that they were to believe, that they were to have faith in, that they did not know. They had no details and concerns that he's going to deal with later. Well, what happens in the second coming to the people who have already died? And, and, and I mean, they had a lot of questions and a lot of concerns and a lot of practical things. So listen to this. Faith is good. It's good to believe the gospel. But I tell you, if you stop there, your faith is lacking. Faith needs to, we grow in grace and knowledge. And actually it is, it is by grace, through that knowledge, that our faith is expanded. It's not, it's not just that we believe harder. Okay? 
Your faith is lacking. You need to just believe a little harder. No, no, no. Your faith is lacking. You only know so much. But there's more to know. There's more to grow. There's more to believe. And I so long to get there and share these things with you because the more you know, the more your hearts exalt and overflow and the more joy that you have. I long to be with you that we might encourage one another, establish you in your faith, fill up what is lacking in your faith, so concerned about your faith. Brothers and sisters, let's love one another. In heart, with our hands, with our hands together. In genuineness. Let's pray. Lord, we always are so thankful for your word and the truths that it shares to us. And in this passage, um, such a contrast when we see the angry punishment of the wrath of God against the sons of disobedience and the deep um, affectionate passions of God's people for one another such an amazing contrast. And then that, that fearful certainty of some who are in that area who think themselves to be in your kingdom when really they're in the other place. Lord, I just pray that you would not let there be any pretenders who are here among us. Not that there's intentionally pretending, but as we're warned in the scriptures, do not be deceived. Lord, I hope and I, er, I pray that none who are here would be deceived, that all would, by the moving of your spirit, evaluate whether or not you are cultivating these fruits and these graces in their lives. And if they see them not, I pray your spirit would stir them further to cry out to you to make them able by making them new in Christ Jesus. Because you alone can do it. And Lord, for the rest of us, we thank you that you urge us as we love one another to do so more and more. Lord, I pray that you would help our love to increase our sense of camaraderie and unity and cooperation and practical assistance. But more than that, Lord, that we would go beyond and be comfortable to speak and encourage and engage one another regarding our faith and our walk and our love. For your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.